0: Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. We are still early in our study of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, which its name means beginnings. Uh, there's nothing abstract about what we read in this book it is presenting core truths for how we navigate life it is informing us particularly in these chapters the beginnings of the world we live in of humanity itself it is helping us to understand about god and his nature and his expectations what he desires for us and expects from us We've come to verse 4 today, and we're going to be reading through verse 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Our Heavenly Father, we come and we are seeking that you would speak that you would press upon us in the places of our heart and mind that you know we need most to see more clearly. Strengthen your people. Give us right convictions. Connect what we hear to what is going on in our life. Father, glorify yourself that we might be people who live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, there are many people who think verses that we just read are just another retelling of the creation story that we saw in chapter 1. They think this is another somewhat older, condensed retelling of the creation story. Uh, But I think if we have that perspective of this section it can lead to some unhealthy conclusions and at the same time it it keeps us from seeing some of the the rich truth that god has for us here if we're thinking this is just a repetition of chapter one it it affects how we view the bible for there are many who think that see there are just different versions of the story because it's all just myth And different people have told it different ways. So it it diminishes how they think of the inspiration of Scripture. It can affect how we think about mankind. For again, there are some who would say that mankind was created in chapter 1, that this is someone different than who is creating God's image in chapter 1. This now is a particular Adam separate, but We've seen that theologically when we come to how Scripture presents the gospel and the sin that came through Adam to all the earth. And so the work of Christ that makes righteous through man Christ through all the earth, that uh, when we separate Adam from the rest of humanity in terms of men created different times, we, we run into real biblical gospel issues. It can affect how we think about God. There are many who consider verse 5 to be proof of deistic evolution. When it says there was no bush of the field yet in the land, no plant of the field had yet sprung up, uh, they say, see, the earth has been created, but there's nothing there. It's just earth and rock, and eventually then plant life came, and then eventually animal life came, and then finally eventually humanity came. So they would point to this and say that this is describing deistic evolution. Uh, But all of these ways of thinking about the passage are unfounded, are unhealthy, and The passage itself actually gives us clear markers about what it's trying to communicate if we pay attention to them. Chapter two is is moving the story forward. God creating the earth, the beginnings of all that is, now the, the attention is being brought to a narrower focus. And this section is about one particular place on the face of the earth, which is the Garden of Eden. And the implications of that perfect place are important for us. When we look through the language of verse 5 and following, our attention is no longer on the earth which was how chapter one described what God created. Now it refers to the land, one particular place on the earth. We also see that the language changes in chapter two from that of creation to now it's the language of cultivation, of what God wants to see happen in this place where he will put man whom he has created. In verse five it says there was no man to work the ground. Verse 15, so God put man in the garden which he had made for him. Verse five also distinguishes between small plants which the Hebrew word for that means cultivated vegetation. That is, gardened. And that is distinct from what it said prior to that of the bushes, which was the Hebrew word that just meant wild vegetation. So we hear this, we see here a a picture of a specific place, which will quickly be identified as the Garden of Eden. We also see that we're talking about cultivation happening in the place that God has brought into existence. But there is another marker that is very strong and I think unquestionably lets us know what is taking place here. And that is how the passage begins in verse four. These are the generations of. The entire book of Genesis is structured by that phrase which is repeated 11 times throughout the book. That phrase, these are the generations of, is how Genesis is structured and every time we come across that phrase, it lets us know that the narrative that God is giving to us is now moving ahead. So, for example, in chapter 5, we will see this is the book of the generation of Adam. And in chapter 6, the generation of Noah. And then in chapter 11, the generation of Terah. And and it continues. Now, usually, and this is important, the the new section is not about the person named. So, for example, in chapter 5, or in chapter 11, when it says this is the generation of Torah, he is the father of Adam. It, it's not about Torah, it's about those that follow him. And so it is with every instance that phrase is used, except for the, the only exception is of Noah. Often it may cover the, the genealogy that follows that person as it will in chapter 5 with Adam. So when it says this is the, the generation of Adam, it then is not talking about Adam. It is describing then his descendants that flow forth after him. Or it covers the events that took place after that person named. It's a transitional Phrase. We're now advancing the story. Or it's a way of saying, and this is what followed after them. So these are the generations of tells us that chapter 2, verse 4 is not retelling the creation story. It's advancing the creation story. That is how that phrase is always used in this book. It's the purpose of it. And this linguistic structure is just more evidence that the entire book of Genesis as we have declared is historical and chronological. Because from the beginning, it is structured in a way to connect one person to another, one event to another, one genealogy to another. There is not myth and symbolism that at some point crystallizes and history becomes, begins. It is historical declaration. This is how our world came into being from the beginning to the end of this book and of scripture. Now, with this in mind, what the, the phrase, these are the generations of, now look again at verse four. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And that is what causes people to think, oh, it's speaking again of when God created the world. But once we recognize the phrase, it's, it's introducing a transition and what follows who is named, what follows is not about what was named, it's about what came after who is named. And in this case, it's not an individual named, in, in this case, it is the creation of the heavens and earth. And it is telling us that what follows verse four is what came after God created the heavens and the earth. That is the structure of the book. That is the use of the phrase. We are specifically being told what we are to read beginning of verse five is what comes after the heavens and the earth were created. The generation of the heavens and the earth created by God is the Garden of Eden that was formed within it. And so with all of that background, what does chapter two, what does this section reveal about life when it was perfect? Because no matter how old you are, you do not remember when life was perfect. I remember driving with my grandfather along the river road coming up to Trenton. And you're passing all of these large trees. And he was, I remember when none of these trees were here. He like, That's a few years ago. None of us can remember back to when... The world was perfect. But here, God's word graciously captures for us that we might know God's intention, what he did, and what was life like, the world like, when it was perfect. There's four observations I'd like to make. The first, God who created the universe placed his rule over the universe. Throughout the book of Genesis up to now, it's been speaking of the name of God frequently. Dozens of times what God has done. Uh, Now, the name of God is added to, and now he is to be called the Lord God. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. God's name is expanded that we might know That he remains Lord, ruler over what he has brought into existence. The universe belongs to God. He is Lord over it. He has the full right to rule. And so God has the authority, the ability, the right, the understanding to tell us what is true about everything that he has created. What is true about this world? What is true about humanity? Who else can really tell us what is true and what is right? It's unreasonable to think that God doesn't have that right when he brought the world into existence. It's illogical to claim that we have a right to declare what is true versus God who made the world. The Lord, the title of Lord God, that refers to more than God's authority. It it also speaks to the reality of God's commitment and engagement in the world. He is not a, vast being who created the world and then faded back lord god ruler god lets us know that he stays connected committed involved at all times in the world he has brought into existence and this rule of god it's it's never selfish It's never arbitrary, it's always wise. It is always good, his rule is always faithful. Every one of us is looking for wisdom for how to live in this world. And we're looking for just wisdom that's pretty good. The Lord gives us wisdom that's not pretty good. It's perfect, unimprovable. How many times have you been in a voting booth and you're just trying to decide between which one bothers you the least as the ruler of the world we live in? No one here is looking for perfect wisdom from your spouse. And when certain things are pointed out about yourself, you quickly say, well, I never said I was perfect. <laughs> However, there is someone who is. Perfect in wisdom and heart, and he is Lord over what he has created. The second observation is that God gave mankind a special place in this world he created. We saw in chapter 1 that we are made in the image of God. And We spoke somewhat about that. It refers to our characters, moral beings, our relationship with the Lord, the, the role of dominion that we will have. And in September, we will take some time and spend several weeks just looking at this theme of the image of God and how it addresses virtually every major issue that our culture faces. We, we start with that. But we have something added to the thought of being made in the image of God. Chapter 2 says that we're also made with the breath of God. Then the Lord God, verse 7, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. We see that this receiving the breath of God signifies that we are spiritual beings. In the book of Job, chapter 32, verse eight, we read this. It is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. The spirit in man is the breath of the Almighty. By that, we understand. By that, we know God. That is why everyone everywhere in the face of the earth has the understanding that God exists. Because we, we are made in the image of God and He breathed life into us. He breathed our soul, made us spiritual beings who sense and just innately know God exists and in that the desire for God, to know him, to be in relationship with him who made us for relationship that we might be with and know him. We are very different from the animals. We know God. And even more, it shows the intended intimacy of the life God desires, this language of God taking what he's formed and God breathes life. Not just animation as an animal, but he breathes into us a soul, a communing with him from the beginning. Chapter 1 told us that we are made in the image of God. Chapter 2 lets us know and we're made with the breath of God. Chapter 1 says we are rulers over the earth. Chapter 2 says we are workers of the earth. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We have a... A responsibility we saw last week of dominion over what God has created. But with that, we are also workers in this world. In fact, the the phrase work and keep it is also used to describe what the priests did in the tabernacle. They were assigned to work and keep it. It is indicating that the work we do, the productiveness that God intends for us to have in this world is a productiveness that recognizes his authority, seeks to honor him, and always has God in mind. Our work is to fulfill the perfect wisdom of the productivity of fruitfulness that God has for us, that this world would work well and that our lives would be full. And that's how we're meant to understand our place in the world. We are not only productive workers, we, we're caretakers of this place where God has Put us. That's meant to be a framework by which we think about how we interact with the world we're in. What is our role, our place? In all of it, we, we represent God. We serve God. We have him in mind. So as a, a mom with young children where your life is gotten very small because of the demands that are constantly on you for taking care of a small one and the world seems so limited and restricted at this time but in that you are a worker productive and fruitful for God impacting these young lives that they too might know and love God. How wonderfully precious that is there is no career or task that is greater there are other things that can be done but never think that they are better than this task that's what kind of friend you are you're meant to be a productive fruitful caretaker of relationships, in terms of I know God, I'm in relationship with him, and through that, that's the mark that I'm making in the relationships I'm in. I'm making a mark for the name of Christ whom I know, who I love. It's, it's the kind of stranger we're to be. It's the kind of opponent we're to be as one who represents Christ who represents that we are his, we know him. We have something to give that's a lot better than arguments. We're gospel employers, employees. Our responsibility on either side meant to represent we know the Lord, we love the Lord, we honor him in how we conduct our role overseeing working it is what a normal day is meant to be i remember the the moment when god brought conviction of that to me when i was looking at a day as just dreary and wanting to get through it to the end of the week and the lord spoke immediately quickly that's That's how the godless live. Let me get to the weekend and have fun. And there's nothing wrong with relaxing and enjoying those days, but each day is rich and meaningful because the spirit of God dwells in me today. I represent the person of Christ. I am worshiping him today. I am serving him. That makes ordinary days meaningful, impactful, those to to drink in the reality that I know and serve God in whatever I am doing today. That makes it meaningful. And that's the orientation of my thinking about today, who I represent, and what the Spirit of God will do with my ordinary routine today. And it's what we are on a hard day. On those hard days, we are people who know God, who believe in him, who love him, in whom he is at work and wants to bring fruitfulness in that difficulty, wants to impact those around us for the sake of Christ through our difficulties. A high form that God has given us, the breath of God. A high calling that we are His caretakers, His workers in the world. And yet, we must also recognize in all of this high form and calling, recognize our dependence. Because verse 7 also says, He formed us from the dust of the earth. We are dust which begins that Biblical theme of the potter and the clay. He is the one who fashions and makes. We are the ones made. And that, that understanding of God's place and our place is never to leave us. And so as we seek to be people who work through this world that has so much pressure and uncertainty and difficulty, This reality that we are but dust is is not meant to be something demeaning or that takes anything away for us. It It is letting us know that we can never get away from our dependence upon God. And indeed, that's where rest is found. That's where fruitfulness is found. Dependence is meant to bring rest, not discouragement. We see this from the Apostle Paul, a well-known passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Listen to what he has to say about his own life as he has been describing the abundance of burdens that he has gone through and pressures he bears. And he tells us, the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness. That's a real statement. From God for you that's that's a way to live I am content with weaknesses insults hardships persecutions and calamities for when I am weak then I am strong this really is the way to find rest in a world that is tumultuous it is not getting over the hill when problems go away that's called death it is as we are in the turmoil we have rest when we truly believe this perfect lord god who is good and faithful when we we live what we say, that we trust him, that he's dependable, that we follow him, we live for him. Uh, We show whether or not we really believe that in how we handle the reality of our weaknesses rather than be discouraged, oh, another weakness, we're thankful, of course I'm weak, of course I'm limited. My God is not, and we've all had enough experience to know what what goes on when we think we are so strong and smart, how self-sufficient we can so quickly become, and then the wheels really fly off. A third observation that God filled his perfect creation with abundance. Verse 8 to 9, the Lord God planted a garden. And there he put the man whom he informed, and out of the ground the Lord God made up to spring every tree, pleasant to the sight, good for food. The word Eden itself means delight. The garden of God is the garden of God's delight. It expresses God's joyful love over us whom he created in his image. He placed us in the garden of his delight that our hearts might be full and overflowing with the abundance of God's good and faithful care for us. Verse 10 says, from this garden, four rivers flowed. Throughout history, people always settled around rivers. Rivers were necessary for cultivation. It was necessary for life to flourish. This garden had four rivers. We're told that the garden was lush, beautiful, and bountiful. not only providing need but being beautiful to behold verse 12 there was gold and precious stones again just letting us know what what is of value in this world it abundantly held, that's why we see the same picture of the the New Jerusalem and it speaks of the foundations and it uses the language of of gold and precious stones. Uh, The Lord is, is speaking to us by what we understand because we cannot comprehend what he has for us. God knows how to provide. God knows how to provide for you. God knows how to beautify not only this world, but your life. God knows how to take what is gnarled and twisted and broken. God knows how to take any measure of pain and brokenness and from that make what is a beauty. God knows how to do that as we follow him, as we trust him, as we obey him. There is nothing of ugliness in this world that God cannot make into something that is beauty. That's why we should desire a conversation with God about all aspects of our life. Praying through your day that God, who knows how to bring good, God, who knows how to place beauty, we need. God to be engaged in our hearts and minds as we go through our day. We need God for that. And isn't it wonderful that we can have the wisdom and goodness and faithfulness of God in what we are doing, that we can have God bring his goodness into what we do However feeble and weak it is, what God brings is not feeble and weak. And the last observation. What was life like when the world was perfect? God ruled over it. He gave us a special place in it. He he filled it with abundance and he gave himself to us in a covenant relationship. Verse 16 and 17, The Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God commits himself here wholeheartedly to us. He will care for us. He will be faithful. He does not leave us on our own. He gives us his wisdom. He gives us structure. He gives us guidance. He gives us truth that life might go well. And he blesses it. No book of the Bible speaks of blessing more than the book of Genesis. Genesis. The blessings of obedience are wondrous and eternal. The tree of life expresses that God has life unendingly good and wondrous as we submit to him, our Lord God. But in covenant, there's also that we are required. We are required to listen to his word to us, his command. we are required to trust and obey. Not only is there the blessing of obedience, so there must be curse when we rebel. And as we're talking about all these wonderful statements about God, to insert the word curse makes us pull back, and that's the excuse so many use to say, "Ah, I'm not interested in that God who speaks of a curse, who speaks of penalty and punishment and of hell. God cannot be good if he neglects the need for justice. If God refuses to put curse on those who would break and destroy what he made good, God cannot be faithful if he does not bring his hand against every sin and rebellion. If God allows it to run free and just brings touches of good here and there, he is not a good just God. He is the perfectly good, just God. And so sin will not be allowed to continue forever. The enemy will not have free reign. God will bring an end to all that is evil. We want an end to evil. We, we are in agony over evil. The problem is we just want an end to the evil in other people's lives. And we want to hold the right to decide what is bad evil and what's not that bad. We do not have that right. We do not have that wisdom. And that will never be, regardless of what we think. And as we work our way through this book and this scripture, we find that the, when God speaks a covenant, he takes covenant seriously. For we will, we will show throughout this book and as we show throughout scripture, we're simply incapable of maintaining the faithful commitment to God. So God will do the unthinkable and sending his son to become flesh. Dwell in the, the image bearer will be God in flesh who will take on sin and pay for our debt and receive the wrath of God, the curse will fall upon him that we might be made whole and free. That is how committed God is to covenant relationship. He will covenant with his son as he has to take away the curse from us. Let's close with this thought. Throughout chapter two, The magnitude of God's goodness is increasing in wonder. The splendor of God is is being stretched across our attention, not only as the creator, but in his goodness in the garden. God is displaying how wonderful he is. So that looking back, the stage is being set to grasp the horrific catastrophe of sin in chapter three. The the first two chapters are meant to show the utter goodness of God that we might see how horrible it was that we would turn our back against him that we would see how unreasonable, how foolish it was, and always is. And looking ahead, the tables being set to grasp the glory of the culmination. In Revelation chapter 22, we go to the last book of the Bible. And we find the picture of the garden is brought back. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God. Why is there no curse? Because the throne of God is there. And of the Lamb, the Savior, and his servants, how will they be good? They will worship him and they will see his face And his name will be upon their foreheads. God will have his garden. And God will have his people with his very breath upon them. And nothing, nothing will keep that from being true for every person who trusts In the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, may we see what is true. May we just see what is true about ourselves, about you. May we see what is true about sin. May we see what is true about your grace. May we see your faithfulness. May we sense your strength. Lord, fulfill your desires in our lives, for that is what we so desperately need. Lord, we, we do not even have the strength to fulfill our part of faithfulness. Oh, we need your spirit to be in us all that is needed. So be that in this hour, in this day. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.